0: Would you turn with me to the prophet Micah? We'll be reading the text from chapter 5 in a moment in connection with the message, but we'll begin back at chapter 1 of Micah, where he begins by telling us the cities that he prophesied to and when he prophesied. Our series on the minor prophets isn't going in chronological order, as you can see this morning we're backing up 200 years in fact to pick up a great prophecy regarding the coming of messiah out of bethlehem here's the way the book begins in the prophet micah the word of the lord which came to micah of moresheth in the days of jotham <coughs> ahaz and hezekiah kings of judah which he saw concerning samaria and jerusalem Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah. And the years of the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were from about 735 to 700 B.C. Micah, therefore, was a contemporary of Isaiah and prophesied during those tragic days when Assyria came against the northern kingdom and uh, swept down, destroyed um, Samaria. Not only did that, but went on in and took over Judah and besieged the holy city itself, although it was unsuccessful because of that miraculous deliverance in those days. Jerusalem's day of judgment was yet to come in the centuries to follow. Micah is a hard prophet to understand, at least he is for me. And the reason is because as you read it, if you try to just read it straight through, it alternates back and forth, back and forth, between prophecies of of doom and prophecies of hope. And it's very hard to figure out how they relate to each other or what situation is being uh, addressed in each paragraph. I think the overriding reason for why Micah writes like that probably is because he wants us to see that there is always hope mingled with doom when you have to do with God and his people. There is never a case when a prophecy of doom is without hope for those who will call upon the name of the Lord. So what I want to do in the message this morning is just look briefly at the, the doom passages to see why there's doom coming. And then shift over to the great prophecy of hope, especially as it regards the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem and the majesty of the name of the Lord. Okay? Prophets like Micah didn't bring the doom on Israel. They simply announced what was coming because of the sins and idolatry of the people. Let's look at some examples of that. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. God's judgment is coming on Samaria because of its idolatry, it says. Here's what he writes. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her images shall be beaten to pieces and all her hires shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. In other words, in a universe where God has created things to display His glory, if we reject God and embrace idols, we will incur omnipotent opposition judgment. God cannot be righteous and suffer long over unbelief. But that's not the only problem in Samaria and Jerusalem. Idolatry always brings with it sins that ruin human life as well as the relationship with the divine life. Look to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 of Micah. He puts his finger on covetousness, stealing, oppression, and pride. Let's read it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising evil from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall walk. You shall not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. In other words, idolatry and haughtiness go hand in hand and result in covetousness, stealing, and oppression. And for those things, the wrath of God is coming upon the world of Micah's day. Now, the spirit of greed and covetousness wasn't only located in Samaria. It had spread south to the holy city itself in Jerusalem. Turn to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. And we can see an awful description of life in Jerusalem in those days in the latter 700s. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion, that's Jerusalem, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its heads, that is its leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for hire. Its prophets divine for money. And yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No evil shall befall us. An awful picture of corruption in Jerusalem. The rulers abhor justice, pervert equity, shed blood, take bribes. The priests are teaching for money. And the prophets will tell you just what you'd like to hear if you'll pay for it. And for all that, Micah promises that doom and destruction is coming. Samaria went into captivity in 722 B.C. and the ten tribes disappeared. And in 586 B.C., the prophecy of chapter 4, verse 9 came true with the exile of the southern kingdom into Babylon. Now, Micah was long since dead when that happened. And so it wasn't Micah who brought the destruction It was the nations and their corruption, their injustice, their idolatry that brought the judgment upon themselves. Now, there's a picture of the doom and gloom passages. Mingled with this doom and gloom in Micah, there's future glory promised to the people who will repent and turn to the Lord. Turn over to chapter 6 to get our first glimpse. We'll move into this by noticing what God requires of Israel if he is going to bring blessing upon these people. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Aren't those the, the very three things that Jesus criticized the Pharisees for neglecting? He said, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, love, and faith. And don't those correspond faith to walking humbly with your God, love or mercy to loving mercy and justice to doing justice? Jesus had the same requirement today as Micah did for the people of Israel then. If they would do that, if they would look to God and accept his mercy into their lives and walk humbly in it, Their hearts would be changed so that they love mercy, and loving mercy, they would begin to seek justice for mistreated people. But, now, if that's true, a big question to ask Micah is, well, is the God of of Micah, who is an avenging God, who brings justice down upon the oppressors, can he be pleaded with for mercy Will he give forgiveness to those who cry out to him in their sin? And if you want to leave somebody with an impression, you always put it at the end of your book, right? Let's turn to the end of his book to see what he wants to leave ringing in his ears. The last three verses of this book show us what Micah wants to have ringing in our ears as we close the book and go to prayer. Verse 18. Who is a God like Thee, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Just like He said we should. He will again have compassion upon us and He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as thou hast sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So there is great hope for this beleaguered people if they will turn and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. Now, that's a pretty good picture of what Micah portrays about the future, both gloom and glory. But if we stopped... With that, it would be like a portrait without a person in it. Not that God isn't a person. God's in this picture and He's a person, but God is spirit. He's invisible. You can't see God. And yet, we know from the days of David on, God has been promising that He wills to be seen in a representative. Somebody to come "...in the strength of the Lord, in the name of the majesty of the Most High, who would be God in the flesh, as it were, and visible." So that we could say, if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Isaiah, who we won't go into this morning, although it's a great Advent book, in chapter 9, verse 6, said that that coming Messiah would be so identified with the, the Father in heaven that he would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. One of the girls who went out afterwards last week uh, commented about how difficult it is to demonstrate the Trinity from the Old Testament. And that's true. It isn't taught in full there. A text like that comes very close to saying the Messiah that we're expecting is going to be something unimaginably Unified with God. That he could be called everlasting father, the mighty God. So, when Isaiah and Micah paint the future, we have to turn to the passage where they put the person in the portrait. That's the Messiah. And for Micah, that means chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. So, let's go there. Micah 5, 2 through 4. Here's the picture of the person. And what I want to do with these three verses... Let's not look at every detail in them, but rather simply take out three things that they teach us about God, which if we believed, if we thought they were true, as they surely are coming from God's holy inspired prophet, we would turn away from every idol and embrace God with all our might and love him above all things. Let's read it again first and then the three things. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in travail has brought forth. Then the rest of his brethren shall be shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell securely, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The three things that I want to develop out of this passage are God always acts to magnify his glory especially the glory of his freedom and his mercy. Second, God always keeps his promises. And third, God protects his people. Let's look at those in turn, because I can't imagine that if anybody thought that they were true, that we could have omnipotence protecting us and bringing us to glory, that we wouldn't want it. First then, God acts to magnify His glory. Notice verse 2. God is speaking in verse 2, and He contrasts the littleness of Bethlehem with the greatness of the ruler that will come out of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is scarcely worth comparing to all the other clans in Judah, and God sets His favor on Bethlehem to bring forth the Messiah from her. Why? Why does God act like that? One possible answer is, well, David, the first David, came out of Bethlehem, and so it's fitting that the prophet come from, or the Messiah, come from Bethlehem as well. And that's true, but it misses the point of verse 2. The point of verse 2 is that Bethlehem is small. It's little. It's unlikely. God has chosen a place small, quiet, Out of the way, like the apartment where you live, maybe. And he does something there that is so great, it changes the course of history and eternity. Now, why? Why does he act that way? My suggestion for why he acts that way is that he wants to take away every ground for boasting in human achievement and glory and focus all our attention on his glorious mercy and freedom. We can't say, well, of course He chose Bethlehem. Look how great Bethlehem. It doesn't work. You don't talk that way in relationship to God's benefits. All we can say is God is wonderfully free. And wonderfully merciful to, to, to bestow His favor on a little unlikely place like Bethlehem. Go back with me to Saul, where David got started, this David lineage. When, when God wanted to replace Saul, what did he do? He sent Samuel to Bethlehem, little Bethlehem. When he wanted to choose one of the sons of Jesse, which did he choose? The oldest? The youngest? Remember Jacob and Esau? The elder will serve the younger? God always is acting that way. When he wanted to defeat Goliath, what did he do? Choose a great warrior or a big squadron? Shepherd boy. When he wanted to choose a weapon, what did he choose? A big spear? A slingshot. Why? Why is God always acting that way? Why does he use little towns and youngest sons and slingshots and majors, mangers, mustard seeds? David tells us why. Just before he slays the giant in first Samuel 17, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword. Or with the spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. God uses little towns and youngest sons and slingshots to magnify his glory. By contrast to our littleness, to show that he is not the least dependent on our achievements, for our human glory or greatness. Here's the way the Apostle Paul put it in First Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to put to naught things that are. Why? Listen to these two purposes. So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Let him who boasts... What? Boast in what? In the Lord. In other words, God chose a stable so that no innkeeper could say, He chose my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could boast, He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. God chose Bethlehem so that nobody could boast. He chose the great city, our city. What then becomes of boasting? It is excluded. On what principle is it excluded? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified not according to works of the law, but according to faith alone. Romans three, twenty-eight. The new thing that came to me in studying this text was that Bethlehem means justification by faith. The selection of Bethlehem, the unlikely, the unworthy, the little, means God neither chooses His cities nor His saints in terms of what they can offer to Him of merit. He sets His favor on them in His freedom and in His mercy and exalts His name so that no man can boast but only bow and say, praise the Lord for His mercy and His freedom. That's the meaning of Bethlehem. Second point from this text. God keeps His promises. Any Jew hearing the words, of Micah that a ruler is coming out of Bethlehem as a shepherd for his people would only think of one person and then another person. The first person they think of was David, King David. David was from Bethlehem. David was a ruler. David was a shepherd. And then the David to come, the son of David. And those two people that would go into the mind of a Jew would be linked by one thing, the promise of God. And the surety of the coming Son of David hangs on one thing. The promise of God. Here's the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, O David, shall be established forever. And the amazing thing about Micah is that he takes that promise and he reasserts the certainty of it, not while Israel is rising to power when we might think, oh yes, the fulfillment's on the way, but while Israel is plummeting towards oblivion. He says, it is sure it is coming. You can tell how firmly a person holds to the promises of God by the difference it makes in their lives. Whether it gives us strength, not just in the good times when we see evidences of fulfillment, but in the very bleak and low times when everything seems to be caving in. And Micah seemed never to waver. Today, uh, there aren't many things stable. There aren't many things sure, are there? And the older you get, the less sure and the more unstable everything becomes. Because our bodies start to become more and more fragile. I think that when I'm 86, instead of 36, that'll be 2032, Lord willing. Can you believe that that there might be a 2032? When I'm 86... I think that I'll approach Christmas, if I'm alive, with two mingling emotions. One is a lot of joyful nostalgia as I look back over how many celebrations with my wife and children. And the other one will be a tinge of sadness because I can't imagine that it's easy to look into the future and know that you can probably count on one hand the number of Christmases you've got left. What does the world say to an octogenarian? Ah, when you're in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, you're very susceptible to the PR of the flesh. Everything seems firm and stable and we can make something of life and we're in control and there's time. And when you get older, you get wiser and you know not as sure if I go to a nursing home where there's a secular social worker and and if she lets me catch her eyes I can tell that underneath all the projects and therapy and games she's got nothing to say zero for my friends Unless unless she turns and believes the Word of God, which is firm and stable at every age. Micah's partner was Isaiah. I wonder how they talked with each other. Isaiah, the great prophet of hope, and here's what Isaiah said about the Word of the Lord. All flesh is as grass, and its flower... His glory is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And that for an octogenarian, forever and ever. I love to minister to the sick and the old because I've got good news for every man and woman, no matter what their condition God keeps his promises, the greatest news in all the world, and they are firm when we are frail. Now, to sum up that second point before I turn to the third, I found this week, I hadn't hadn't put this first. It just was a a beautiful summary of these first two points after I thought of making them. Romans uh, 15, 8 and 9, which says this. Listen to this summary of these first two points. For I tell you, Paul says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises, that's point number two, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God because of his mercy. Christmas means confirmed promises and the glory of the mercy of God. When you find things like that after you've written a sermon, it makes you believe in biblical theology. That this book hangs together. Now, here's the last point. God protects His people. Look at verse 4. This is such a great verse. He shall stand and feed His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. And they shall dwell secure for now He shall be great to the ends of the earth. God's purpose in sending the Messiah, according to this verse, is to be a shepherd. To shepherd his people. Now, everybody in this room, without exception, needs a shepherd. You may not feel like you need a shepherd. You might feel very unsheepish at the moment. Very strong, very independent, very able to make it without somebody to guide you around, poke you, give, give you pasture and show you where the water is. Don't deceive yourselves. There will come a day and not far hence when you may have to go through the valley of the shadow of death and you will want the comfort of that rod and staff very much. Everybody needs a shepherd. We are sheep. And the good news this morning is that God sent the Messiah to be your shepherd for the having, for the trusting. If you just look to Jesus, He'll shepherd you. And let me show you what He gives you. Four things in this verse. These are such great incentives to close with Christ and follow behind Him as your shepherd. First, He will stand. Just take that word stand. He's not going to lie down on us and make us serve Him. He's not going to wait for us to work for Him and serve. He's going to stand up, be on His tiptoes, keep a lookout, and guide us to where we need to be. Second, He will feed us or he will serve and shepherd us. He'll show us where the food is, lead us beside the still waters into green pastures, and we will have no want. Just like old David said, so the son of David will bring about. Third, he will serve in the strength of the Lord, it says, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. That means that all the good intentions of the Messiah cannot be frustrated. What's the strength of the Lord? It is omnipotence. That means that if you're following behind your shepherd and he has omnipotent strength, every obstacle to your joy and to your purity will be removed. Nothing can resist the omnipotent omnipotent strength of the shepherd. And finally, the fourth thing, he will be great to the ends of the earth. That means there will be no pockets of resistance outside the kingdom of Jesus left unsubdued. That means that there will be no threat to the peace of the pasture by marauders or assailants from without. His kingdom will spread to the whole world. Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. So the sum of the matter is this. Christ has come out of Bethlehem. He is that shepherd. And he will come again. The first time, just like his city, he was poor and unknown and obscure. Not the second time. The second time he will come in victory. And the good news of both of those comings, when you put them together like Micah did here, is that one... God makes it his business to magnify the glory of his mercy and his freedom. Two, he keeps his promises. And three, he protects his people. And I can't believe that there's anybody here today who doesn't want omnipotent protection and who doesn't want to be the beneficiary of a promise that involves eternal and infinite glory. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I pray that people here who don't consider themselves the sheep of your pasture, who have not confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior and the Lord of their lives, will in this moment see the beauty of the offer. That you were sent, Lord Jesus to confirm all the promises, and to glorify God through mercy towards the Gentiles. That's us. Grant, O God, a turning, even as we close in song and in celebration. Amen.